Welcome to episode 18 of the Pogue McGold podcast. Oh, it's a beautiful goal, isn't it? A beautiful goal. What a save! Messi, Messi enganchó como le gusta el probo con zurda. Morda again, another time, the shot on the foot of it! Oh, what a goal! What a goal that is! What a goal from David Beckham! Oh, Zinedine, oh, Zinedine, that passer! I'm James Carew, co-editor of Pogan Goal, and to kick off the 18th edition of the podcast, we're excited to tell you that pre-orders of the brand new issue 7 of the Pogan Goal magazine are now open. We've added 12 more pages, totaling 72 meaning more quality writing, artwork and photography from contributors from Ireland and around the world. Features include how underground music has taken inspiration from the game, Glasgow Celtics' deep links with Ireland's northwest, how Vizsla Krakow and Krakowia's poor relation Hutnik Krakow rose to the top flight and brushed shoulders with European joints, Brian Kerr, Ireland's most successful underage manager, one of the world's most famous artists and the painting that saved the club, plus much more. Pre-order your copy now on pogmagold.com. On today's episode, we're doing something a little different in that we're giving you a sneak preview of an article from the brand new issue of the magazine, a profile of one of the finest players ever to pull on a green jersey, but whose career has not gained the recognition it deserves. But first, I'm joined once again by my co-host, Taylor Gill, a communications manager based in London, a Portsmouth fan and fast becoming chief cheerleader of the Gavin Bazunu fan club. Welcome back, Taylor. <laughs> Thanks, James. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to have you back. Taylor, I recently went back playing seven aside and I'm really enjoying it, but also quickly realising that myself and my teammates are not as young as we once were. For my first game, I wore an Arsenal shirt shortly after they'd been hammered by Man City and we were duly spanked. I then wore an Ireland shirt and we were quite literally given the runaround by a bunch of teenagers. And so the choice of kit every week is fast becoming a superstition. So my question to you is, do you have any superstitions when it comes to playing? Uh, Not anymore, but I definitely used to. I've got a piece in your upcoming magazine, Pogue McGull, pre-orders open. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, about football boots and so football boots were very superstitious for me it was kind of my first taste of like uh being a consumer basically like saving up my own money and buying my own boots and so I loved them and I was convinced that they made me magic even though I didn't play that well (laughs) so that was very superstitious for me it was the predators wasn't it yeah they were predators 2002 they were red they had screw-in studs, and I used to take them home every single week, chip off all the mud, and then wax them because I was obsessed. <laughs> yeah. Back then, if you were going to wear Predators, you had to have the skills to back it up, didn't you? Yeah, I'm not sure if I did. I was, I was going to ask, what shirt are you going to wear next? Oh, I'm not sure. I'll see how Arsenal and Ireland go the next couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> And so I've really been looking forward to chatting to today's guest, who is Shauna Cook, a former player in the Women's National League, Ireland International, lifelong League of Ireland fan, and author of the feature article, Record Breaking for the Fun of It, 
which explores why Olivia Livy O'Toole should be a far more celebrated figure in the Irish game. Welcome to the Pogue McGall podcast, Shauna. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you. I'll I'll start with the same question for you. Did you have any superstitions in your playing days? Not so much uh, superstitions, but um, I, I remember I had a great coach a uh, long time ago and uh, he said to me, uh, always wear very basic boots because then uh, the expectation is very low and anything <laughs> you do will... Uh, will exceed the expectation. So I never wore predators. Mine were always Monday Owls and, and uh, Speciales, uh, you know, and, and that always worked out well for me. The classic. could have done with that advice when I was 15. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shauna, we ask all our guests when they come on the podcast, what or who first introduced them to football? Yeah, for me, I think it was a combination of things. My dad was a player and, and a coach. Um, I also grew up with um, a childhood best friend of Gary Deegan, who who played uh, professionally in, in in Ireland, England, and now back in Ireland again. Um, and we we grew up in Coolock, so it was kind of a rite of passage. It was you know back then it was football or dolls or trouble um, when I picked football. So uh, <laughs> that's that's just kind of stuck, you know. And like the article we're going to talk about, would you have played with boys teams uh, from an early age or with the boys? And what was that like growing up in Dublin? Yeah, I play. I played with the boys teams um, up until I was, you know, mid teens. Um, and you know, I would have played football from from quite young. Um, and I remember when when my dad kind of brought me to I came home from school one evening he was like look we have to we have to go and train with a girls team because you have to change over to playing with, with girls soon and I just didn't understand it and um, I turned up to the training session and I remember the coach was practicing throw-ins with the girls and I was so frustrated because I had you know learned that when I was a lot younger with the boys and you know, I realised that the girls were all, the majority of girls in the training session were, were quite new to football and they were learning those basic skills and that I had learned a lot younger. And um, so it was a it was a big kind of transition. I grew up in, in an area where, similar to Olivia, um, where we would have played football on the street. Um, it was jumpers for goalposts. You know, I think I was the only girl. Um, I wasn't treated any different any differently. Um, you know, I, I took the tackles and the kicks and uh, the bruises and scrapes, but um, I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, you know, it was, you know, when I moved into women's football then, I, I think I, I had a basis um, that at that stage not, not a lot of other girls had. What we're seeing now in the game is, you know, girls are playing from younger ages now and have that tra- have that training and I suppose technical ability Um from a younger age but yeah look I, I loved it I had great memories um playing football with the boys and uh, playing out in the street. I saw a recent interview with you on Off the Ball that uh, you went to England and similar to young boys going over there it, it kind of almost lost the love of the game trying to kind of make it in the cutthroat leagues in England and you returned to Ireland and subsequently went back to England but it, it's that's a that's a story for all young Irish people is that you know to 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 try and make a career in it it's a big upheaval to to leave your friends and especially as you said it was quite a friendly atmosphere in women's football in Ireland yeah yeah like 
For me, I suppose, you know, being from a working class family back then, like we, we wouldn't have traveled an awful lot and I wouldn't have been away from mom and dad for too long. Um, and yeah, like, you know, in Ireland, like obviously we've quite tight knit communities um, and, you know, you're playing football with, with friends and, and people that you, you see uh, quite regularly. And the league was quite, I suppose, the, the league I was playing in in Ireland, like it was small and competitive, but still is equally friendly. Um, and going across the water was a big learning experience for me. Um, you know, the I suppose the business aspect of football started to come into it. And, you know, and, and it, it just got a lot competitive. I, I started, I had a few injuries, ended up with a, a, a bad facial fracture. Um, and I suppose you just have more conversations around, um, you know, I remember one of them where I was told I'd be surplus to requirements. Um, and you just kind of start to feel like, is this for me? I'm away from home. Like, what's the point in doing this? Um, there was, wasn't half the amount of money in the women's game then as there is now as well. So you really are aware over there for, for the passion of it, you know. How old were you when you uh, moved over to England? I was 17. Uh, my first my first trial over at Arsenal, I was 14, um, and I was offered the opportunity to, to stay um, or take a place down. But my parents, I suppose, being quite sensible, were like, look, do your leaving cert, get your qualifications. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they kind of wanted me to, to get some real life experience to work as well. Um, and that's exactly what I done. And then I had a few opportunities to go to the States, but I, I'm a home bird, like I was too far away from home. And my mom told me it was too expensive to, to post the Barry's tea bags to America. <laughs> it is. My brother is a coach over there and that breaks my mom's heart when he asks for potatoes and hunky-dory crisps. <laughs> uh, Sean, is it right you played in the very first Women's National League season? Yeah, I did. Um, come back to, to uh, Ireland and after a bit of a, a break from football, um, my dad was still coaching Rohini at the time. He said to me, look, why don't you not throw back on the boots and uh, come down to Rohini? Uh, there was a good set up there. Like, you know, we're talking about players like Katie McCabe, Megan Campbell. Um, and it was just it was very competitive, uh, the, the team. And, and I, you know, that's when I kind of realised like this is my team. You know, this is where... I'm I play my best football I'm happy here and um, I'm enjoying it and the the first season for Rohini wasn't amazing we finished second to P-Mount but it was we had some fantastic results that season and um, it was definitely one to remember and now to, to we'll talk about in your article kind of some of the issues in women's football particularly with the national team that affected Olivia and I'm sure yourself as well but looking at the national league now and it seems like there's much more coverage. We've just had live games on TV in Ireland. There are live games of the, the women's game in England. There does seem to be, despite the problems of the F, previous FAI, if you like, there seems to be a lot more coverage now of the national team. Attendances are up. It does feel like the national team is on the cusp of something and that the game is growing in these islands. Yeah, like at, I suppose at, at club level, there's been great strides and there's a lot of people behind the scenes um, doing great work. You know, there's pressure on clubs now, like the, the I suppose, Eritricity League clubs to support women's football. Um, and a lot of clubs in in the past would have kind of had extensions of women's teams, but not really f- fully covered them. 
um, you know, now more recently they've had to cover them um, and support the teams. And we're seeing, you know, teams playing prop women's teams playing in proper stadiums, which is the way it needs to go. There are still issues. We're, we're losing a lot of players to America and England, which is really affecting the league. Um, and the FAI need to do more to to, to support that. Um, because, you know, I, I, I think we have the ability here to de- develop and maintain a very strong uh, women's league. Uh, in terms of the international teams, like you know, all the supports are there now. Um, we have, I, I think, the most amount of players we've ever had at semi-professional or professional level. So, um, you know, that comes with expectation, and you know, I, I think uh, I'd be expecting them this time round now to qualify. Um, you know, based on the support they're getting, the resources and and the standard of player. I wanted to ask how how does uh, how do players of kind of your generation and Liv's generation feel about the kind of rise of women's football in the last decade? Because it kind of feels, I mean, it's it's a different league, but it, it feels slightly parallel to like the uh, pre Premier League generation, and then the Premier League explodes in the nineties, and all these players that were like top of their game in the eighties see these players going on to earn millions and millions, and it's they kind of you often hear them talk quite not bitter, but they they regret that they kind of missed out on that boom. Is that kind of similar for for Livy's generation and, and you guys as well? Yeah, I, I think it depends on on the type of player you are and, and how in love with your, your ego. Um, for 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 me, like um, you know, I I always said that I, I definitely punched above my weight. Like uh, I was a good reader of the game, but but I, I definitely um, had an awful lot of opportunities that I think there was an element I suppose and I was good at kind of you know getting players around me to make me look a lot better uh, than I was and um, so for me I felt like I kind of exited at the right time and um, I never wanted to be a player that um, you know people were watching and going like oh she needs to stop playing football now like you know she's too old um, but like in terms of uh, Olivia like you know I, I know you know, she was extremely competitive and she had such a passion for the game. Like I was looking at a tweet she put out earlier in relation to the Barca game and the Arsenal last night. And she was like, oh, what I do to be playing in that team, you know, and mm. it does make you think like, Jesus, if she was still playing, like what, what a treat um, spectators would be in for. Um, but I'd say, you know, and from speaking to a lot of players, I, I think there is always an element of like, oh, you know, my generation had better players than that are playing now. It, you can't compare. It's like apples and pears. But um, there are players that like you do think about and I talk about. Like there's another one uh, played at Arsenal for a while, come back to Ireland. I, I don't think we realised or got to see our full potential. Caroline Torp. Um, like it's players like that that were really technically gifted that you 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 know you think about and you'd say and you'd have conversations going, Jesus, you be setting the stage on the fire and Ireland would be definitely qualifying if we had you now, you know. Yeah. Uh, just before we jump into your article, I think it's already coming across that she's a bit of a role model for yourself or a hero. Um, it feels like maybe in comparison to what it was like in the men's game, that there's a good spread in the women's game in Ireland. Um, I know I worked in as a journalist in Kilkenny, the local paper, and, well, that's ten more than 10 years ago, and the women's game was growing then. There are a number of Kilkenny women, just as an example, in the Irish squad, and 
I tell, I put it out now. Ellen Malloy could be a superstar. Uh, she's 17 years old. And I know friends of mine uh, worked as teachers in her school. And they said, you want to watch this girl? She's, gonna, she's destined for the top. But it does feel like, in comparison maybe to where it was Dublin-centric in the men's game for a long time, it's much more spread in the women's game. Yeah, and I think that's partly down to, I suppose, we'd have more players that maybe come from GA um, into the women's game. Like, you've got, you know... That's GAA for you, Taylor, the Gaelic Games. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, you've got, like, the likes of another, I suppose, uh, one of Kilkenny's finest, Karen Duggan, uh, you know... A uh, prolific hurler in our in our day as well. Uh, Sarah Rowe from from Mayo. Um, loads of other players: Aileen Gilroy, Siobhan Killeen, um, Sarah Shannon. And so, you know, a lot of females are afforded the opportunity because it's not professional here to to play multiple sports. Um, and that kind of benefits, I think, football very well. Olivia O'Toole was the country's all-time top goal scorer. There's no such thing as girls playing football. Jarrett still, oh yes! We will do everything to make Ireland proud. Just play the constant, play the against the wall, against the path, against the pole. My ma, my dad, like my ma gave me our last five, I'd like to get the bus to train. We've seen Irish teams with so much talent over the years. He just missed it, Olivia just like messy that you know, like how was that possible? I'm not here to dish the FAI, it's they gave me a lovely career, they sent me around the world, it was brilliant, but it was just the equality thing never happened. But the little things make your life so bitter. Don't ever forget to, where you came from. The best times in your life I think for Ireland. Well let's jump into the article. Um, I think it's a brilliant addition to the new issue coming out. And I'm going to start at the end, if you forgive me. So you, you kind of round up her career in the last paragraph or in our edited version of, of your article. So with 130 caps, 54 goals, five hat-tricks, scoring the goal to give Ireland their first win against a continental team and providing the assist of hope in the Euro playoff, a career that should have ended with a bang was allowed to merely fade out. Livy was one of the most naturally gifted players to ever wear the green jersey and it was the unconditional love that pushed her to earn the title of arguably Ireland's most influential player. Shauna, tell us about Olivia O'Toole. Yeah, I think um, Olivia in, in Irish football has, has definitely become a bit of a, a, a cult here. Of, um, but yeah, I, I don't think she's probably as decorated and celebrated as she should be. Um, there's a tendency, I think, in, in the women's game to kind of um, not be as ruthless and and, and cover, I suppose, uh, stories and, and coverage of women's football with, with kind of rose-tinted glasses at times. And a lot of the stories I read about Olivia in the past are articles I just felt like they didn't really kind of cover the the her whole... I suppose story in, in a way that really celebrated her, but also told the obstacles um, that she really had to overcome. And for me, I was fortunate enough like to to play alongside her, have her as a mentor and and, and a friend. Um, and you know, I I often I, I firmly believe like if she was a male, if if Olivia was a man, and we're talking about a man right now, 
you know, we'd be talking about a statue somewhere, you know, we'd be talking about uh, being inducted into the FAI Hall of Fame, you know, we'd probably would be watching a, some type of programme or she'd be on uh, talking to Tommy Tiernan and Ryan Tuberty, you know, about her career. Um, but she she just hasn't, I suppose, had that um, platform. And it's because I think the time she played football and also because she's a female. As I mentioned that the coverage now is a lot better, but I'm talking about only in a matter of a couple of years. Like prior to that, we don't know about her because we 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 weren't exposed to the women's game and that's a that's a flaw in the media and in the FAI and yeah I think like you say if if she was playing today everyone in the country might know who she is yeah definitely I think you know she'd walk walk around you know people would be asking for autographs and and talking about her like I went to a game a few weeks with her and and uh you know, we were we were um, doing a bit of work on behalf of the FAI, like, but somebody asked her on the way in for a name, you know, and, and I'm thinking, like, this is the greatest female footballer we have, like, um, yeah. you know, and this is uh, someone involved in women's football asking. And uh, so, yeah, you know, that kind of, I think, speaks volumes about the, the lack of, of um, recognition Livy, Livy got and gets. Sure, no, I haven't... Um... I've had a look today and I haven't managed to find a single clip of Olivia in action. And, uh, but we, we read in your piece and I, I've read a few pieces elsewhere, um, that she learned her football in the streets. Uh, and there's a, I've saw a reference online to a particular, a particular game called polls and there's other references in your piece and elsewhere, uh, comparisons with Messi and Maradona. So I just wonder what, what kind of, playing style did she have what kind of player was she and are those comparisons at all accurate uh 100 she she was messy um yeah. like you know it, it's a pity that you, you there's no kind of footage out there because she was one of those players that um like would score these goals like that like messy that you'd be going like how was that possible and you'd watch the you'd kind of play it back over in your head again and again and um, I remember I had a video of a game and we were given after an, an Ireland uh, camp we played a few games and they'd given us the the match the match one of the matches on v- VHS you know and, and I remember watching it back and watching our movement and um, just like skipping in and out of players and I, I was trying to like watch it to be like okay I'm gonna learn how to do that and um, not that I ever could but um she was just naturally gifted like she was agile she could move she she could read the game like one of those players that um didn't have to do a lot off the ball and uh, because she was so clever and um, she knew exactly where to be what she'd do when she'd get the ball like she'd turn on a, on a sixpence um, and there's a, a a famous Irish footballer Tony Sheridan um you know and, and I played a football match a few weeks ago with Tony who's a lot older now but still as equally brilliant um and I'm sure Olivia would be the exact same if she was to, if you were to get a ball out and go on a 1v1 against her, um, you just wouldn't get it off her. But uh, yeah, completely gifted player, exactly like Messi. Your article, it charts her career. Uh, what, a, what a lengthy career. There were gaps in it, uh, mostly n- not her doing. But played in 1991, so that, that away goal that's referred to was uh, in Cordoba in Spain. 
where we beat them 1-0 and your article describes a sea of Spanish flags among 7,000 with one tricolour, which was the one the team brought over. And it was the goal to give the women's team our first win against continental opposition. And then the FAI pulled the team out uh, of competition because of a bad string of results. But again, maybe a lack of foresight from the association. And then... Years later, 2009, much more used as an impact sub, but scores the equaliser in a playoff, the Euro playoff. It's like, what a career, what a lengthy career, and to have such an impact over such an extended period of time. Yeah, like, you know, it's incredible, and, and the I suppose what I do outside football is I'm, I'm a researcher, so I'm big into analysis and stats, and this is something that I... I really love getting stuck into um, and I suppose it wouldn't be as um, extensive as the men's game but when you look at Olivia's stats over her career like you know I've, I've got the, the sheet up here and like you know playing until she's 37 you know still still scoring goals and competing and and you know in Olivia's mind I, I've sat on the bench beside her in games with Ireland where She's sitting there and, and she's actually going like, you know, if I get on, I'll, I'll make a difference here. You know, at, at 36, at 35, I, I'll make a difference here. Um, I'll, I'll assist that goal or I'll, I'll score if I go on. Um, she just had that belief. She, she, knew, she knew she was really good at, at what she could do, um, but she, she wasn't overly cocky. But um, yeah, like, you know, I don't think we've seen a player, male or female, that has had that impact on an Irish team or a team over such a long span. That's a huge statement. That And, and unfortunately, we don't have the clips to, to see it. But obviously, you watch the men's game as well, League of Ireland, Premier League, all that. And and you you make that argument. She's arguably one of the best players ever to play for Ireland, male or female. Yeah, definitely. I was fortunate enough to play with Livy at club level and like anything she was doing at international le- le- level, she was doing a hundred times more at um, club level and like the league wouldn't have been like prolific here. Um, but like I remember one game where like she had scored something like seven goals before half time and the ref had to come over and was like, look, Livy, will you cool your jets? Like, just, <laughs> you know, and now she's she she uh I, I i don't think she took that too well but um like you know you'd start off in matches uh with maybe a few parents on the side of the pitch and then by the end of it you just have hordes of people um standing around like people who be walking their dog or just out in the park and they, they'd stop to to watch um you know and it it is unfortunate that, that there's no kind of video evidence but you know even from speaking to people like Emma Bourne and Kira Grant anybody who got to play with Olivia I think speaks so highly of her because um you knew you'd look 10 times better on a pitch with Olivia do you do you have any uh, particular memories of her goals or even individual performances? Like we 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 have such a lack of footage, and we've all kind of mentioned that. Do you have any performances that you could that uh, uh, fresh in your mind that you think about when you think about her career? Yeah, I I remember going to watch one game. So for me, there was I suppose two games. The first game that ignited my belief that I could go on and play football was watching the women's international game and no disrespect to any of the other girls that were playing that day but it was watching Olivia and actually going 
like, oh, I like there's a, a girl that actually plays to the standard of men, you know, like she, it was like watching match of the day, you know, um, Ireland were playing in Talga Park and she scored two goals that day. Um, I can't remember who they were playing against. I still have the program. I, I, it was signed by Emma Warren um, and it's in my bedroom in my parents' house. I'd have to go and check who they were playing. But I remember that day was kind of, kind of I suppose, a, the day that made me believe I could do that. Um, and then there was a game against Scotland when she scored four. Um, you know, we're talking about a time when, like, you know, Olivia had no right to perform to the level she did um, back then, considering the lack of resources, uh, you know, the there wasn't the kind of, I suppose, level of training and, and um, you know, I suppose, elite uh, support there is in, in sport now, especially not in Ireland. And, you know, she was playing in a local league here and then to go out against Scotland, who were quite a good team at the time. They had Julie Fleeton playing, who, who you know, played for Arsenal, quite a prolific player. The other players um, that played in England as well, and for Olivia to go out and, and score four goals um, that day, and like that, you know, the, you'd watch an awful lot of Ireland games where the team would be pinned back for like long periods of time. And I was talking to Emma Bourne about this, and she was saying like, you know, they they spent an awful lot of time defending, and uh, their outlet was Olivia. And, you know, you'd, you'd basically watch those few chances Ireland to get in the game. But you knew when Olivia was on the pitch that the chances of scoring were high. And, you know, half chances would turn into goals. And I remember one of them, like, you know, because she's a small player as well, um, a ball in the air. And, and she's, you know, surrounded by two centre-halves that are nearly double her size. And she manages just to pluck this ball out of the air. Uh, and she it took it out of the air, the air and in the same touch basically just swiveled on the player and, and shot. And without even celebrating her aunt, and she fixed her hair and pulled up her socks and just ran back uh, to the <laughs> wow. half and I. Yeah, it was just like, you know, if that was me, I'd be kind of going, look, I'm finished here, lads. I'm retiring. I'm <laughs> for that. See you later. Um, but for Olivia, it was just bread and butter and the parallels with yourself growing up in inner city dublin and learning on the street uh, that very much comes across in the piece that she also played with boys teams and then later in her teenage years joined joined women's team but but and you you have it in the piece i think one week she's playing in front of twenty thousand in the usa and the next is in a dublin park like it really was you you quote and I should say you speak to Olivia for the piece and players like Emma Byrne that she says she just played for the love of it. It didn't matter that she wasn't playing in these big stadiums or across channel or anything. Yeah, you know, I've I've played with all kinds of players and you'd you'd have players that give out if they didn't have the right tape for their socks. You know, that's why they didn't turn up and perform today, or you know, ones that would complain because the wind was blowing northwesterly um like they'd compl- footballers complain about everything um but like that was just never olivia um you know she never gave out about any you well, know she she did a lot of giving out um about <laughs> the association and if you didn't yeah. pass her the ball and you scored or something like that but um she she never kind of used excuses you know and no matter what the conditions where she performed and she performed on the same level um you'd sometimes 
see players that go off international teams and they come back to club level. And because it was Ireland um, and at that stage, you, you, they, they, you didn't really have the pressures you have now to perform. It was kind of like, oh, no, I, I can't be bothered. Like I'll, I'll just have a run about today and, and not really overexert myself. That wasn't Olivia. Um, she'd come back, she'd get into the dressing room. There'd be no kind of airs or graces. It would be kit on go out and play a match, you know, and then if you did something she didn't agree with, she'd let you know about it. Um, but like that, you know, you'd be taking the nets down with her at, at the end of a game. It wasn't, she wasn't like, I'm too good to take nets down or, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm above this. She was just so passionate about it and she treated everyone the same. So it wasn't like, you know, I'll be nice to these people I play international football with and maybe the ones that aren't up to standard because there, there was a, big separation in clubs at the time like clubs here might have had three or four really good players and then you know a bunch of other players that were kind of okay and Olivia just spoke to everyone the same and you know I learned a lot from her about that and about you know how, how to treat people and how to get the best out of people and she knew the people that she could you know eat the head off or, or give out to them and the other people that she does have a, a gentle chat with um, but yeah she just never changed from team to team and I really love that about her. I have a couple of questions about the kind of end of her career so your, your piece talks about her final game for the national team which I think is a friendly against Reading um, and it's set to be held uh, at Tolka Park but it's moved to some sports complex on the outskirts of Dublin and yeah. she, she told her family not to come because she didn't want to be remembered that way. Um, and then at the end of the game was handed a kind of bouquet of flowers and said, you know, thanks for all your service. And it's probably it's worth reiterating that her service was like the top ever scorer for the women's national team. And I, in the lead up to this, I looked at Robbie Keane's final game for the national team just by way of comparison. And obviously he's the top men's scorer. And that was a... Um, can't remember who it was. I think it was a game against Oman uh, uh, at Aviva Stadium again, and he got a big a guard of honour in front of twenty seven thousand fans, and it's you know this huge thing. And you write in the piece that she felt so low about how it ended, and I wonder now how she looks back on her career with the national team. How does she feel about her you know her whole career with the national team, and then how it ended from like today's perspective? Yeah, from talking to Olivia about it, I think we both found it difficult, you know, me as a, a friend and a teammate and, and Olivia obviously having to kind of endure it. Um, she still, I think, has a kind of a, a bitter taste about it. Um, and you're, you're completely right, you know, you look at someone like Robbie Keane and, you know, the kind of, I suppose, decoration and, um, you know, adulation he got as he exited football and, you know, still is on the payroll for the FAI, I do. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was difficult for Olivia um, because, you know, I think at that time there was two teammates retiring and I'm not sure, you know, if uh, it was a bit more of a heart and head for Olivia. I think she wanted, really wanted to play on um, because, for I think a lot of the team at that time that weren't playing professionally, they kind of had other things, other jobs or, or, you know, other things that were starting to become prominent in their life. But football was still the centre of Olivia's life. So in her mind, I think she was like, 
what do I do here? Like my heart is telling me to stay, my head's telling me to go. Um, there was going to be a management change happening, so that was playing uh, into the decision. And I, th- I think part of it was taken out of our hands. It was like this match is happening. Um, you know, it's a good time to go. Um, you know, so the decision I think was partly kind of made for um, that it was going to be a retirement for herself, uh, Claire Scannon and Sharon Boyle. Um, and, you know, the team, Reading was chosen to come over. Um, and yeah, it was, it, it just, it, you know, it wasn't good at all. Um, you know, the match taking place at, at a training facility, um, you know, and when Olivia talks about it, you can hear it in her voice, uh, how difficult it is for her to kind of, speak about it. and knowing her I I don't think Olivia expected um some big parade or you know a guard of honor or anything like that like what she just wanted was you know to to receive that respect um and um I suppose to have that reflection of love that she gave to to Ireland for so long that she maybe just see that back one last time yeah your piece also mentions Partly what kind of drove her magnificent performances was an anger or a frustration at that treatment. She, she, you mentioned the, the, the team going around the local houses with posters to say, come to this game. And we've spoken before on the podcast about, well, effectively when the Irish team went on strike, and that's only a couple of years ago, where being given oversized tracksuits and changing in the airport toilets and this kind of stuff. So, you know, we yes, yes, things are being done better now, but uh, the association have been shamed into it. And the treatment of players like Olivia and perhaps your era uh, reflects that, that, you know, for a long, long time, they didn't have their house in order in any any aspect of Irish football. Yeah, I, I, I think you're completely right. Um, you know, like I was, I've been thinking a lot recently about women's football. Um, obviously with what's going on in the US and and things that are are going on behind the kind of scenes, and you know, it's it's a real double-edged sword. And I think like, um, you know, there's there's so much good happening in women's football, but. Sometimes all the media stuff I do thinks a bit of a smoke screen um, for for some of the bigger issues that are still going on and speaking out um, and I suppose um, standing up against things in women's football is a bit of a luxury for players um, because the opportunities aren't as vast as the men's game. So you can wait so long to become professional or get an opportunity and, and, and you're at a stage then where, you know, you're you're in a quite a vulnerable position, um, you know. So I, I, it can be difficult for players to speak up at times, um, and especially for those that that wear pro or are pro. And uh, you know what I can say about Olivia was the one thing for me playing with her alongside her was she was never one to to hold her her mouth or not voice her opinion. And um, she was doing that long before the strike happened. You know, she would always speak out and and say things where it's right. Um, I just think, you know, it got to a stage there where there was a lot of players at a stage, um, strong players that were at a stage in their career where they had nothing to lose and were willing to drive on like Emma Byrne, you know, fantastic what she done. Um, Pity she's still not, she's not involved in women's football in Ireland anymore um, because she still has a lot to give. But yeah, 
unfortunately, you know, I, I do still think that speaking out and standing up is a, is a luxury in the women's game. It, it's like you look at the men's game and the dispersion of power is, is you know, it, it's a lot better. You know, players have power, coaches have power, man, management has power, federations. But in the women's game, there's a real unhealthy amount of power with coaches and management. And, and I think that's what kind of leads females to you know end up in vulnerable positions and you know and and be open to to a lot of I suppose uh, situations where they're unsupported and um, exposed and uh, sorry not exposed and you know taken advantage of uh, and you know yeah Olivia was I think was always given out about that kind of not I won't say given out but she was standing up for the team all the time and you know, I remember one time after a game, and um, we walked back into the dressing room, and it was like a a, 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 a kind of tinfoil plate of sandwiches uh, for us. And I remember her being like, "You know, what is this?" Mm-hmm. And they were like, "It's the that's what you get as you know finishing the game." And she was like, "Sandwiches, cheese sandwiches," um, and, you know, I was a young player at the time and, and I was kind of like, I didn't know any different, but it was that she was setting that standard that I think other people then started to actually go, OK, I need to do that. I need to talk out, you know. So, yeah, I do think although she wasn't involved in, in that aspect of it, she was a driving force um, for a lot of the players that were. Shauna, I wanted to ask about... Um her influence clearly she's had a massive influence on you and you write in the piece that she's had a massive influence on on other players that were in the team particularly when her kind of playing time reduced and that kind of put pressure on other players you mentioned Michelle O'Brien, Steph Curtis, Fiona Sullivan in the piece um, and clearly she's um, gotten like an aura in the dressing room and uh, amongst other footballers I, I wonder is she still involved in the game now? So Olivia, she coaches at um at uh what you'd call like um county level here. So like she she coaches a local team that play in the the county league, the uh, the local league in Dublin, um and I've got her involved in doing some scouting for the FAI. Uh, there's one thing she can do is pick a player, um and she just has that you know as natural player, um you know an awful lot of times now I think. Players are judged on more than sport. They're judged on what type of social media accounts they have. Are they good on Instagram? You know, what type of boots they're wearing, things like that. Um, whereas Olivia can just, within five five seconds of looking at a player, like I can stand beside her in a match and within a minute, she'll tell me, you know, that, that player's, you know, going to make it. One of them being, you know, Ellen Malloy. We were watching the game and straight away she pointed out Ellen Malloy. Um, she has that ability and... and for me, it's so important uh, for for other people that are involved in football to get her involved and keep her involved because she still has a lot to give. One video that does exist of Olivia is when the London Olympics took place. The Olympic Flame Relay came to Dublin and she was chosen to be part of that relay. I think that reflects her standing in her home city. Yeah, in around our community, Sheriff Street, she's she's absolutely adored and loved, and um, she does a lot for the community, uh, and it's such a strong community there as well. Like, you know, I know that was such a proud moment for her and our family. Um, you know, they got to see her uh, on a, a massive stage like that on television, and I suppose 
it was kind of, you know, that moment where, you know, if only this coverage could have happened while she was playing. Um, yeah. But yeah, she, she does so much for the community there and even for giving a platform to, to other uh, athletes now, like she was doing a lot of tweeting and talking about Kelly Harrington in the lead up to the Olympics and kind of trying to generate um, the support for Kelly. So she, she does an awful lot, especially on Twitter as well, for the women's game here in Ireland, kind of sharing clips and trying to talk about it as much as she can. Sean, I have a final question. What is it about growing up street football or that kind of not necessarily having the training of other players and professionals and this kind of thing? What is it that gives players like yourself and Olivia the hunger that we perhaps see lacking in some of today's players? Uh, I suppose I can only speak from from my experience and it's similar to Olivia's in that when when you're from an area like you know a working class area um, you play football and I, I think there's a real desire to, to prove you can be something and you know there's an awful lot of odds stacked against um, I think from my experience, people from working class areas, and um, I, I have experience of playing football and uh, over the south side of it. And um, I, I remember it was the first time I, I started to think I was a bit different. Where a coach actually told uh, the the team that we were, um, you know, beneath them, us us being from the north side. Um, so I, I think it's kind of that fighting spirit of of trying to kind of prove that that you can be something and um, I also think you know the, I was talking to Emma Bourne about this and now kids have so many other ways to to try and uh, engage with their peers and, and people around them um, or you know like-minded people um, from TikTok and Facebook and, and everything that's going on gaming um, whereas back then you know um, sport was a real opportunity to kind of connect with people um, and it was a real opportunity to go and see the world as well so I think for the likes of myself and Olivia who probably wouldn't have seen half the world if we didn't have the opportunities in football um, that was also a big driving factor. Yeah it's a wonderful article Sean we've only scratched the surface of what's in it like the kind of obstacles as you said she had to overcome a two-year exile from the international squad along with the FAI pulling the team from competition we've spoken about how the social media age and nowadays young women and and boys can see these players uh, as role models the likes of just last week Katie McCabe's 40-yard screamer for Arsenal that you can see instantly on your phone so I think you've done a wonderful job of portraying Olivia as a role model and giving us an insight into the type of player and person she was so hopefully this goes some small way to giving her some of the recognition her career deserves. Yeah definitely you know as we said there's not the clips out there for for, uh, I suppose younger players to see you know I, I hope that we can kind of keep her, her uh, the moment she's given football, football and, and uh, especially Irish football alive through kind of folklore stories and, um, you know, people will be talking about it for a long time to come. Yeah. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and thank you for contributing to the magazine as well. And I hope people go out and buy it, 
read this piece and uh, thank you again for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. And to you, Taylor. Thanks, James. Thanks, Sean. It really is a wonderful piece. I can't wait to see it in print. So thanks for coming on. Cheers. Thanks very much. And that's it for the latest episode of the Poem Gold podcast. Drop us a rating or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and toggle back for previous shows. Don't forget, you can now pre-order the very latest issue 7 of the magazine. And remember, pre-orders allow us to bring the publication to print, so we always appreciate your support. Join us next time on the Pogue McGoal podcast.